I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. It's a real pleasure to be with you again. And one of the things I love so much about being able to share this time together is the range of conversations we can have from people who have education companies, people who are head teachers, principals, senior leadership, and people that are just working within education and making such a massive difference with conversations, with an understanding that it's the communication, it's about how we make people feel. There's that, that whole range of all of these different things which hopefully all sort of come come to us and, and give us an understanding of, of all the different elements it takes to, to have something which makes a big difference to children, which is obviously the reason that we're here. Today I'm delighted to be chatting to Dr Nancy Dome. She's a renowned speaker, author and equity consultant. She co-founded Epic Education in 2014 to provide leaders in education and business with accessible professional development in diversity, inclusion and belonging and equity. As an educator for nearly three decades, Dr Dome taught in the juvenile court and community schools and has served as a distinguished teacher in residence and faculty member at California State University, San Marcos. Her transformative approach helps school districts and educational agencies throughout the country navigate complex topics build bridges and work together for inclusive impactful change so i really hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with dr nancy dome hi nancy thank you so much for joining us here on the education on fire podcast it's always a a pleasure to speak to people from across the atlantic and get different perspectives on 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 our education systems and learning generally although i'm firm believe that a lot of it's fairly universal it's about human to human um connection and contact and, and community and that sort of thing so yeah thanks so much for being here oh thank you i'm i'm it's my pleasure so Let's talk about race. I guess that's the, the name of the book. It's, it's probably where, where, where we should start. Give us sort of a, a bit of a potted history about how that came about and what's involved in it. Yeah. So I, um, I'm an educator by trade, and I started my career working in the juvenile court and community schools. And what I found, so just for a little background, um, JCCS is a system where Kids who are expelled from public school um, in the U.S., it's compulsory that they have education and have access to it. So even if they get expelled from public school, we still have to provide education for them, whether they're incarcerated or what. And so um, what I realized as I was working in this system, this alternative education system, was that most of the kids were black and brown. And it, it, when you think about the population, it just doesn't, it's, it's disproportionate is the best way to say it. And I was very curious as to why our kids were, our kids of color specifically were 
predominantly the ones represented in the system. And unless there's a fundamental belief that, you know, kids of color are just inherently bad, um, then there's something wrong with the system because it's there's so many of them in there. So I just started thinking about, you know, what does race have to do with this? And in the process of looking at that and doing my uh, doctoral dissertation work on the population that I was serving, I realized that I wanted to have explicit conversations. And so in the kind of in the in the process, we developed this pro protocol called uh, RIR initially is how it started. And then what I wanted to do was add compassionate compassion to it. And so we named it Compassionate Dialogue. And we just started teaching these strategies for how to have difficult conversations with people so that we could get to the bottom of some of these issues that are continuing and especially now, you know, fast forward 15 years to divide us. And so, you know, we, we, I, I, I should say, uh, really developed the program. We started training, my team started training it and the book just was a natural outcome of the work that we wanted to do. And we wanted to make sure that people had access to the information without having to actually hire us to come in and train them. And so we, you know, if you want change to happen, it's got to be accessible. And so this was a way to make it accessible. So my, my first thought is, it sounds like this is really important, like I say, for, for, the, for the young people that you were serving and, and sort of trying to get to the, the bottom, opening those conversations up to sit to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. Is there also some sort of correlation with the fact if we could have these conversations before they got to the, the point where yes. you were having to have these conversations, I would imagine that must make a big difference then too, because it's like I say, it's the conversation that's the important part. Absolutely. I mean, and my whole trajectory, even to how I founded Epic Education was this idea that how do I touch more educators so that our kids don't have to end up in the system in the first place? How do we make traditional compulsory education work for everybody, not just a handful of people? And so th th that's been the foundation of my work and the protocols of peace, because while most of the time when we're talking about using the RIR protocol, it's that interpersonal when we're talking about those, you know, dynamics between people. It also is applicable for looking at systems and looking at policies and procedures and how things are done. And if you run those things that are problematic in your system through the RIR, the recognize, interrupt and repair, then you're also able to start to look at it differently and make changes that would hopefully in the end benefit all children. So do you think some of these changes are are happening and are they happening fast enough? And I guess, are they happening sort of whole scale enough in order to make, you know, the future feel brighter for people who are sort of say coming into the education system or, or certainly people that are vulnerable? Yeah. You know, that that's an interesting question, because if you would have asked me that uh, four years ago, I would say that we're definitely making progress. And now with the attack on, you know, critical race theory and the attack on even social emotional learning, I, I'm not exactly sure why people feel SEL is not appropriate, you know, healthy, functioning uh, children is not important, but when we see what's happening now, at least in the US, I'm not sure what's happening in the UK, I feel like um, it is going backwards and it becomes even more important that we're doing this work and that those of us who are really fighting uh, to make sure that our kids are healthy and safe and thriving, 
that we that we are leaning in even more now and i mean is it really kind of is it down to the politics is it down to the fact that it's really hard to change a system is it down to the fact that our entire system is based on we need some kind of measurable outcome and like you say mm -hmm. all of what we've been talking about so far is about conversations and about opening a world where there can be discussion and understanding mm -hmm. and there doesn't seem to be that kind of day-to-day sort of conversations that that we need because that doesn't deliver the outcomes that you know the system needs or the politics needs yeah um so as long as we think that we are separate from each other it's going to be a problem it, it we have been very much divided and there's a sense that there is a finite amount of resources right and so if you think of it like a pie there's eight pieces in this pie and people are fighting for those eight pieces and i don't think that's really where we are i think the truth of the matter is is that the pie is infinite um there's so much that um that so many resources that we have and there's so many ways in which people uh can participate that we don't have to act as if there's only enough for me. And I, and until we realize that all of us are connected and all of us are uh, actually our, our livelihood, our future is dependent on our ability to work together, to support each other. And when we realize that the better you are, the better I am, as opposed to I got to make you, it's at that crab bucket. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but the idea that crabs in a bucket, as they're starting to crawl out, other crabs will pull them back down. We're really in that crab bucket mentality here where we feel like there's just not enough. And I, and that has to fundamentally shift. I think in order for us to move forward. And unfortunately, I think it is, it's become much more politically driven than really I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And, you know, we've got a system that wasn't really designed for everybody. And, and it's unfortunate to say that. Um, and I strongly believe that. I don't think that our education system in the U.S. was designed for uh, for people to actually be critical thinkers, to, to, you know, to be leaders, to grow. I, I think it's designed to keep people um, kind of subordinate and in a working class. Yeah, which is doing brilliantly, which is hence the reason yes. we have so many problems. Which That's is, right. That's yeah. right. Um, so for, from all the conversations you've had and all the work you've done, are there sort of key areas or key things which you can you see sort of week in week out or month in month out that that kind of show show you the way even if it's difficult to put it in the system mm -hmm. that can start to change this sort of the environment and and the way that people are actually interacting well i mean i think the first thing is always there's got to be a willingness to look critically at ourselves you know it it, it there's a saying you know it takes two to tangle um, and a question that I was asked years ago that stuck with me that now I always ask myself and that I ask my clients that I work with is how have I contributed to, right? Whatever that to is, how have I contributed to the failure of black boys? That's an interesting question as a black woman who taught black and brown kids, right? And I remember being asked that question and kind of being taken aback for a second and then realizing that, yes, I too, because I'm a part of the system, Unless I am actively resisting, you know, the, the, the way that I was trained to teach and the way that I was trained to discipline and the things that I am to contributing to their failure. And so 
that has to be a question that we're willing to ask. And we have to be willing to look at ourselves and say, what role am I playing in perpetuating whatever it is that's not working? Um, Because we're all part of a system. So when you're talking about schools, you know, every teacher, every administrator, every classified staff, you know, support staff, if we're not actively working towards change and success, we are passively supporting a system to stay the same. Yeah, and that's quite a scary thought, isn't it? Because yeah. it's one, it's very hard to put your head above the, the parapet and say, no, this isn't how I want it to be because, mm-hmm. you know, you've got someone telling you, yes, it is. Or or you have to kind of take yourself out and try and find the environment that you want to work in all the sorts mm-hmm. of education you think is going to be is going to be giving the, the results that you want in terms mm-hmm. of the type of culture and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is fine, except that then leaves a whole other part of a different school or a different part of the of society which doesn't get that support. And that's probably the place where we need to be putting more focus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and. Uh, putting focus uh, and also the recognition that this is a journey. It's not a destination. You know, we, it, it, with as many people and, you know, kids come in and kids are, you know, children today are different than we were when we were kids, the, the things that they're exposed to, the things that they have to think about. Like I, I'm 100% grateful that there was no social media when I was growing up. And I'm also 100% grateful that there is no pictures of the things that I did when I was growing up, right? Mm-hmm. And and those are the things, you know, our kids are coming in having so much more on their plate. And we need to understand that, like, they're, they're different. And when you understand that every time, every generation is going to have different influences, we will then realize that the work that we're trying to do has to also shift and grow with the changes of, of the populations that we're serving. And the fact that we continue to do education the same way that we have always done it is problematic because it hasn't taken into account the fact that our kids are coming in differently with different exposures and different stressors and things like that. I mean, it does make me sad to think that in some time, in some ways, and indeed sometimes, you have to kind of park education as in formal education and schooling and that kind of thing to one side and just admit it's just something we have to do. You know, we're told that you have to go to school, you have to have an education, it has to look like this mm-hmm. in its sort of, in whatever sort of spectrum that that comes in good, bad and indifferent. But I wonder whether we're getting to the point now where people who work slightly alongside, outside or slightly alongside education or the community at large, or like you were sort of saying about social media, you know, the kind of the people who have influence on our children yeah. outside of education need to have not a higher profile but something which shows people that I have to go to school I have to do this and I'm not going to rebel as much as I have been because I can see another way I can see Mm -hmm. other people that can be those role models and those mentors in a way that was never possible before but due to social media and the internet and all those kind of things it's hard to place that but it just seems to me that that might be a way that we can kind of start to straddle that gap yeah I mean I I think that that uh, taking advantage of all the resources that are available to us is definitely a way. And I think that um, the idea, like for us, you know, the the K-12, you graduate when you're 17, 18 years old and you're in the system um, is not effective anymore. And the idea that everyone is college bound is also it's it's just not even something that we can support. So it's just we, we create this myth from the very beginning 
that, you know, you need to do this and then you need to go to college and you need to do this, except for you can't get into your local colleges because they're, they're full. And, um, and so what is the alternative? And I think the only, the tricky part here is that when you think about the alternative, what you start to see again is our black and brown kids being kind of geared towards the alternative, you know, and that's, we saw that tracking happening in the seventies and eighties around trade schools, you know, your, your black and brown kids were put that way. And then your, your white kids and Asian kids were more uh, tracked towards higher education. And so my only fight is, is that every kid should be prepared to go to college if they want to, but it should not be the only outcome that we say that that's what you have to do because our, our kids are dropping out because they don't see an alternative and school isn't serving them. And so looking out externally to what those other, you know, resources are, what were the other pathways that, you know, people who are successful, that they can show us another way to, to also be successful if we're interested. And I think one really important word that you mentioned earlier on was serving. And I think it's it's very easy for us to get into, like you say, you know, this type of ch child will do this and this type yeah. of child can do this. And, you know, my family has a history of going to college and my family mm -hmm. doesn't and all of that kind of thing. And I think that's really hard to change. But yeah. as soon as you as soon as you change the whole dynamic of kind of what are your skills? Where do you like to spend your time? Who can you help? Yeah. In which way can you help based on any of your experience, good, bad or indifferent? Mm -hmm. Then that suddenly changes the whole landscape and that whole conversation again mm -hmm. in, a, in a completely different way than just I'm going to do this exam. I'm going to take this subject and I'm going to do this career because we know that's not even a reality anymore anyway. Yeah, absolutely. My, my godson, um, at, he hated school. Um, he's, his parents are, uh, I'm, I'm sharing this just so that you get an idea. His parents are German. His, his dad is German and his, uh, mother is a, um, American Jew, but her father was a German Jew who was in the concentration camps. And I, I share that because we also think that it's just kids of color, but, you know, um, ethnically, ethnically Jewish, but white. And he hates hated school. He's very creative. He wants to be an actor. And um, finally, we got him at 16 to take the Cal uh, California high school proficiency exam so that he could get it's it's a 16 year old version of the GED so that he could graduate school early. He just turned 18. And he's already completed two years of community college and ha was able to work at the same time. And he's been happy. For two years. So this is a kid for 16 years and for probably the last five years was miserable in school and would not would have struggled to graduate had he stayed in um, in school. And, and where are those alternatives? How do we take a look and say, this is not a bad kid. You know, this is not a defiant kid, but it's a kid who is bored in the way that we are doing education and how many of our, our kids who are bored, but don't have the resources that his mom and dad had and, and the know-how and the, and the relationships with like me and our other high school best friend, who's a principal who helped her learn about the Chesapeake so that they, sh so that he could take it. What happens to those kids? We know what happens, right? When you don't have the resources, then they drop out and, and they, then their trajectory just goes down. So any potential that they did have cannot possibly be re realized or at least not easily realized. 
and it seems to me that everyone's trying to find their tribe aren't they mm-hmm. and yes and that tribe is either someone uh, or a group of people that you want to be involved in that you can get access to or it's one that you find yourself in mm-hmm. um and and i guess our job really is you know with all the the, the the troubles that we've talked about is to is to make sure that there's there's a positive tribe close yeah. enough by with yes. actual outreach that enables that safe landing as it were so it doesn't yeah. matter whether it's in school or out of school or whatever it doesn't mean that if it all starts to feel like it's unraveling it's going to end with you getting in trouble because there's a tribe that's going to get anybody that right. seems to be weak or struggling in whichever way yeah and 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 it helps us you know i think that is so important and it helps us realize that the way that our communities are structured here that it's really difficult for some people to have that tribe, you know, that tribe of resources who have the uh, information that you need to, to help you, or it's too hard to access it. Or in many ways, you know, we call it stereotype threat, but it's this idea that you begin to believe the negative stereotypes about, you know, who, you, who your people are. Um, and so you just, well, there's no better for me. Why, you know, why should I ever even try to do better because this is all I'm capable of achieving. Yeah, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? You know, that you get asked a question which you can't deny and then mm-hmm. you then can't see a different truth because it's just sort of laid yeah. out for you in, in black and white kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean I, th- I think it's really fascinating and I think it really does just start with the individual person, whatever mm-hmm. whatever that happens to be and I think you kind of hope that everyone has um, a wonderful family that gives them the support they need. Mm. And then you realize that's not the case. And then you hope that school is a safe haven and a place of aspiration and a place where anything is possible. And then you realize that's not the case for every Mm -hmm. single person. And then you hope there's somewhere in the community that they can go, whether it's a a church or a religion or a club or a, a, a youth group or anything that just has that outreach. And then you realize that not every child has that option, that option even. And I think if we can at least just instill this idea that there's somebody out there that can help and it may be you know one mentor one teacher you know what seems like a very bleak situation there's there's going to be someone that's gonna that's gonna make a difference that i think that gives a that just gives a a hope and 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 a possibility which kind of can then move things forward yeah yeah and and people then realizing that uh that they can change the the history like that historic you know um oppression that they've experienced that they can actually get out of it that there is a way out and having those access to those resources is really important and and how do you know to ask for it if you've never been exposed to it you know again i'm going back to those communities that are you know dilapidated that um you know don't have that have high crime rate and you know lack of support you know how how are how are those folks getting access to those resources that can show them a different path? Yeah, um, and I guess with that that in mind, is there a school experience or a teacher that you remember that that was valuable or and sort of sort of sticks in your mind as kind of yeah I knew there was something different here even if I couldn't quite sort of put my finger on it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so middle school, which was probably what, 12 to about 15, 14, 15 for me, was super difficult. And I had uh, four teachers, uh, three teachers and a counselor who 
between the four of them just rallied around my sister and I. So I'm an identical twin. And so the both of us were kind of going through this stuff at home. And, you know, it's uh, Lois Keithley was my counselor. And I remember going in and trying to take, you know, all electives. I, I didn't really want to do any work. I just wanted the easy classes that I wanted to enjoy. And and her response was like, absolutely not. You, you know, we are going to make sure that you're at least prepared to go to college. You know, you may not go, but you're going to be prepared. And so she just stuck with us. And then um, Greg Miata was my math teacher. Um, Pam Easter was a PE teacher and Dennis Flynn. And I mentioned all three, all four of them because uh, we were, I, I could kind of get in a little trouble. I experimented with a, some drug use. I was just, I, I was just kind of disenchanted with school and, and with my life on some level. And they just made sure even out of school that I had and that we had what we needed. So sometimes it was food. Sometimes it was a ride home. In one case, it was taking my sister to the dentist and paying for um, a procedure because we didn't have any medical insurance at all. We didn't have any access. There was no parent in the home. And so, you know, we were trying to navigate the real world without having any real world experience. And the four of them stuck with us, not only through middle school, but also through high school. And, you know, I'm 55 years old and they're all still in my life today. And, and that for me, th those four, I will always give a shout out and say that you changed the trajectory of my life um, through being involved and seeing that there was, that we had potential and what we needed was support to realize that potential. And they provided that throughout our um, schooling. And, and I think that's incredible. And, and in terms of what we've been speaking about so far, you know, like you say, there's someone somewhere or, or a group of people that can. And, yeah. and the other thing that just strikes me is the fact that even that generosity and that understanding, that empathy and compassion, even that's harder to give now because yeah. you can't just give a ride home. You can't just do this. Yes. You can't do those human things. All maybe for the right reasons in terms of why these things are in place but i think the 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 detriment to some of those things is is sort of obvious for people to see as well yeah i i would say that if i were that teenager today i'd probably end up in child protective services and um and that would have again changed the whole trajectory of my life and the fact yeah. that i could stay home and that these folks made sure that we were safe and that we had what we needed and also held us accountable, you know, when we uh, didn't do what we were supposed to, um, really in some ways were surrogate parents to us. And, you know, maybe in some ways even probably risk their jobs to make sure that we were safe, you know, uh, because I think if that was today, they, they could not possibly do what they did for us. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? And I think yeah. that the, like say people trying to do so much work and so much good and help so many people but there, there, there's so many restrictions now yeah. it's uh yeah. it's almost hindering what what it's there to protect and what it's there to support but i, yeah. I guess that's a, that's a whole nother podcast and a whole yeah. nother, <laughs> whole nother <laughs> conversation absolutely um what was the best piece of advice that you've ever been given or is there a piece of advice you'd give your younger self now looking back that would uh say right nancy this is you know, this is something you want to re remember or, or certainly you can sort of take notice of yeah well the best piece of advice i was ever given was actually from my grandma and my grandma was born for context in 1912 in alabama during jim crow and 
you know, raising my mom's five kids, because my mom was away working and traveling a lot, you know, one of the things that she told us was that, you know, you're going to have to work harder than anybody else. And it's, and it was, you know, unfortunately, it was about race. It was about the fact that, you know, as a black uh, young person, and her experience growing up in the South was that, you know, don't expect to get the first job you apply for, expect to have to reapply. And so in some ways it instilled this idea that failure was normalized. Like you, you were going to, we were going to not get something. There was going to be disappointment, but you couldn't let that disappointment derail you. And when I fast forward now, I think it set me up for, you know, when I didn't get that job, I, I was okay, how do, how am I better? How am I going to be better? And so I, I always say I'm super overeducated, um, more, you know, more education than a person needs, but I never wanted anyone to ever say that I wasn't qualified because that is the rhetoric that we hear when it comes to hiring and diversifying, you know, um, businesses and education is that, well, you know, when you, pinpoint and say, I want a, you know, black or brown candidate. Well, are they qualified? And there's never that question around white candidates of whether or not they're qualified. And so my whole thing was based on what my grandmother said was that, oh, you're never going to be able to be able to tell me that I'm not qualified. You know, so I had a master's by the time I was 22 years old. And then I had my doctorate at 35 and I have a teaching credential and a special ed credential. And, you know, I'm certified for um, for CLAD for teaching, you know, students uh, with uh, second languages. And so you for me, her saying that to me made sure that I prepared myself for kind of the, you know, unfortunately, just the discrimination that we see in the U.S., Um, And so if I'm not going to get a job, you're going to have to really explain, or if I'm not going to get an interview, you're going to have to really explain to me why I didn't get it because my credentials are there. And so, you know, I, I think that in general, that would be really good advice for everybody. It would be nice if it wasn't based on race. Um, But if we could give that advice to uh, young people today, because I think that, you know, I always say it's the era of um, everyone gets a trophy. You know, you you play a sport in every and and I'm like, we got to learn how to win and we've got to win with grace and we have to learn how to lose with grace, because that is the nature of living in a society is that there are going to be things that you don't get. And if you don't get it, the first reason can't be it's because you took my job. You know, a a person of color took your job like it's not your job. And now that we have this, um, you know, this movement to really uh, diversify and to, to provide access to more people. Now, you know, whites in the U S are actually having to compete against the whole population instead of this smaller population that they had to compete against. And that I think has set up our, our, you know, young white people who are entering the workforce, um, for a level of failure because, they have been told and taught that all they have to do is like check these boxes. And if they do all these things, then they'll get their job. Right. And, and, but it's not their job. It's, it's our job. And so this idea of really um, making sure that folks know that you're competing, not just against people who look like you, but you're competing against a population, which means that if there's only one or two jobs available and now instead of 50 applicants, there's 150 applicants, there's got to be a a level of realism that uh, we have to teach for people to understand that it's okay to fail. I think that the failures and the, the, the disappointments made me 
stronger. It made me more resilient for sure. Um, and it, I don't, I don't give up. And, and I think that's in the end, a great quality. Absolutely. And I think it's also really interesting or would be really interesting to dive into that sense of that bias that you sort of talked about there, whether, whether there are many people out there that even realized exactly what that bias was like you say about the tick boxing I've got that job Mm -hmm. or the fact that you have to overachieve to get a job depending on your background to think Mm -hmm. that I'm sure there are so many people out there who you kind of know but you don't really know the reality of what that looks like until it sort of really sort of hits you directly yeah well and and I would say you know uh, there's a little activity that I do that speaks to that in my in my sessions. And we talk about the talk, the talk that Black parents have with their Black children, right? Um, the talk about, you know, when you get pulled over, what do you do with your hands? Or the talk about, you know, you can't get in trouble because you're likely going to be the one who's, you know, it, it's the talk about how to be in society. And white children in this country don't get the talk like that. But in the end, it means that children of color are more prepared for those things when they do happen because they're more prepared that they're not going to get something which is different than, you know, white children in the U S who think that they, that it's almost a sense of entitlement. And I don't blame them because, because if you don't know, you don't know they, that they've been taught this. And so there's this sense of disappointment where, well, that almost is, uh, debilitating for many people who have been taught that something is theirs. And when they find out that it's actually not theirs, they don't know what to do with that information. Yeah. They don't have the awareness or, yeah. or the knowledge or the know-how yeah. or, yeah. or, or let's like say it hasn't even been on their radar. So therefore yeah. you're not just starting from a point of an, of an unknown. It's that you don't even know what there is not to right. know. Kind of that's thing. right. You it's don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's where if we if we look at it that way, we begin to realize that, you know, the the history of all this um, separate, you know, separation and discrimination actually is harmful to everybody. It's not just harmful to the targets. It's harmful to white folks as well, because um, you don't know what you don't know. And when you come up against it, you don't even know how to be you don't know how to be in those situations. And so the more that we can um, really begin to see each other as equals, right? And and understand that we all belong here, the the and that we're and that we're in this together as opposed to in competition, we're in collaboration, the more we begin to send that kind of message, the healthier we begin to be as a society. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a really interesting point in terms of of the way the education system is set up, isn't it? Because it's all about I'm getting a better score than you, or yes. it has to be like this. Not, you know, we're going to do a project and we're going to try and gain this kind of outcome, and we're going to use all of our skills and all of our input, and we're all going to put in whatever we can to make this mm-hmm. work, and we're all going to succeed or fail together based on what mm-hmm. we're doing. I mean it's a completely different way of working isn't it and and it could work so easily and the results would be fantastic and you would still get to learn all the important things yeah. that are, in inverted commas you should learn as well you know you absolutely you, you can't you can't do a presentation if you can't talk and you can't read and you can't write it's not like yeah. none of that's going to happen but it's just going to be coming from a from a different um, standpoint really yeah yeah 
I mean, growing and learning together is really where we're going to be at our best. And as long as we, um, you know, people leave their home schools to go to, you know, private schools and do that, you know, the resources are being taken out of schools um, that would keep those schools strong and that would make sure that everyone succeeds. But again, you know, we, we are really into this um, very individualistic um kind of ideology about how, you know, I take care of me and mine, um, as opposed to I take care of us and that you're, you know, and that if Mark, if I can help you, you know, then it, it ultimately helps me and, um, and we're in it together. You know, that, I, that's the world I want to live in and that's what I'm working. That's what I'm working toward. And maybe I'm, um, naive, maybe I'm too idealistic, but I don't know how else to be around this. I have to believe that we can do and be better. Um. And and I, and I think that's where these conversations are so important. It's why I was so privileged that once I sort of started this podcast as a passion project to share these sorts of things that people came uh -huh. on the journey and they want to be part of it. And I, and I, and I think, you know, I think essentially what you just said there is probably the key to almost everything is the fact, you know, how I can help you, how, how I can do something for somebody else, yeah. which, ultimately does come back to us i think i think those of us that are aware of that know that 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 to be true but mm -hmm. like i say you have to see it you have to hear it you have to understand that you have to be part of it in many different ways because if it's not on your radar if you don't know you don't know and uh, yeah yeah the same thing applies um for most of us there's there's a resource that has a massive impact on our life and it can be anything from a podcast a book a song a video a film could be anything but is there is there something you that sort of sticks with you that sort of gives you that support or that that kind of uh insight um when yeah. you most need it yeah you know i um i call it i started my spiritual journey uh, because i was kind of um really disenchanted with the church my I, my grandmother was a, a baptist and you know church was a very big part of our lives but i had some negative experiences in the church and i kind of ended up just no moving away from it and i remember being introduced to like richard bach i don't know if you're familiar with him um there's a book called the bridge across forever and gary zukov who wrote the dancing wooly master and you know they were all this this idea about being on a spiritual journey and a spiritual path and and it helped me realize that i could have a relationship with god but it didn't have to be through this dog you know kind of dogma of um of uh, religion, you know, the way that we've done it. And what that's done is it's, it's really given me the faith and the belief and the support when I need it, when things get hard, you know, and I think that we have to believe in something and I, you know, I don't prescribe to what that something is, but for me, it was having a relationship with God to understand that I am supported in this work. And if I, as long as I'm working towards what I believe my purpose is on this planet, that I will be supported in it. And so I feel like I've been super supported because I know that this is the work I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And I think, I think each part of that journey, doesn't it? From the realization to the mm -hmm. finding the person, to doing it, to the reading, to the awareness, to the yeah. awakening, um, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, it's all part of the whole and i think that then becomes very supportive in like you say the good times the bad times and, yes and, and everything in between yeah especially the bad times right <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> for sure <laughs> um now, we've probably covered this already because you spoke so well earlier on about resilience but um mm -hmm. in terms of 
fire that we talk about here you know mm -hmm. the idea of the feedback resilience inspiration and and empowerment it, what 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 speaks to you the most about that and what do you think is important of, of either aspect of it yeah i well all of it i think all of it is important and um when i when i saw that i what i loved about it was that I, like a person came to my mind immediately and she was my old director when i was in the court schools and, you know, it was my first real job as an educator. You know, I had been a, a professional volleyball player and kind of like let that take me as far as it could. And then I had to get a real job. And uh, and I just remember like being on this journey. I was I worked in the system for 10 years and just having her always like giving me that, that the feedback, you know, positive and constructive, like, you know, sometimes I didn't always do things, always giving me the opportunity um, to, to grow and be better, whether it was a conference or like, Hey, we're, we're going to start doing um, and hiring for a uh, mentor teachers. I think that you would be a great mentor teacher and a great leader for other people. So providing me with those opportunities and really just believing in me and inspiring and inspiring me in a way that let me know that I could do this, right? And it, having someone in your life who kind of, you know, like you said, I like the FIRE acronym, who kind of lights that fire underneath you so that you so that you know that um, there's more to you than what you think, you know, kind of get you outside of your box. Um, I, I just think about, you know, my the fact that I own a company now, and even though I never wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, was really planted in those early days because someone, you know, did those things. They provided me with the feedback and inspiration. Um, I walked in with resiliency for sure. And um, they helped me feel empowered to know that I was, um, I was enough, that I was capable um, that I was worthy, you know, and all those messages were important to me um, because I think that outside of sports and knowing um, my strength as it was around being an athlete, I'm not sure that I felt those things in other aspects of my life. I mean, I knew I was smart, but I also um, felt like a jock um, as, as in a singular, I don't know if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. but really being, um, being encouraged to, to see myself beyond those limitations. Right. And see myself as so much more with so much more to offer. Yeah, I mean, it's so gratifying to sort of hear you talk about it in that way, because I think you're right. I think each part of it leads on to the next. And, you know, feedback is often seen as sort of detrimental or scary or fearful or, you know, it, it, it just when it's done in the right way, it's empowering and, 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 and inspirational and it gives you what you need. And I think a bit like we've said all along in, in the sort of this last 40 minutes or so, it's that sort of sense of, we need to have these conversations with people from an early age. You need to know that feedback's important. You need yes. to know how you get the support. You need to know that life's not always going to be roses and, mm -hmm. and, and, and you need to know how to work with those things. And I think when it becomes embedded as part of who you are and you can then step forward in that, then hopefully, like I say, you have all those skills you need in whichever way your, your life takes you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I agree with the feedback part. I think that, again, we've been conditioned in our society to, you know, to not be honest with each other because we're afraid of whatever that afraid is. And I have a little coined phrase that I say that the reason we talk about people is because we don't talk to them. And 
when I talk to you and I share with you whatever my concern is, you know, if we're working together and if you're able to hear it as constructive, whether it is positive or, you know, I, I don't like the word negative because it's not negative, positive or constructive, you know, uh, or, um, you know, or just a way to do better. But, you know, I, for sake of time, we'll say negative. But if you can hear those things and know that they're coming from a place of really wanting you to be better and to be stronger and to be more effective. And if you can begin to hear those things, then how much better, what does that make you? And then how much better then does that make us? And I think that we have to learn how to uh, give feedback, but also to receive it. Uh, so I, I, I love people giving me feedback. I'm like, you can tell me anything. I'm not sensitive because I have a, I have enough um, esteem to understand when the feedback is meant to hurt me or if it's meant to support me. And so I'll take what you give and I'll filter out what doesn't resonate. You know, um, if it doesn't resonate and I feel like there's another agenda, then I'm letting it go. Uh, and, and, but you know, for me to get to that place, though, was a journey. And so in the beginning, we have to really, that's the kind of things, but it's through practice that we actually begin to know how to do that and care for ourselves in the process. Because I hate to admit it, but I think there are people who are out there just to hurt you and set you back. And we need to be able to differentiate between those folks and those who genuinely want what's best for us. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and to bring this full circle, it is, you know, if we can, if we can have that for every single child, yes, then it doesn't matter whether two plus two is four, they're going to learn that they're going to learn how to write a sentence. Yeah. But without all that other stuff, we're going to continue that ongoing, ongoing cycle. So, yeah. well, Nancy, it's been, it's been a real privilege to, to chat to you, tell people where they can find out more and get an idea of how they can work with you and the sort of support that you can give them. Absolutely. Um, so my website is Dr. Nancy Dome, drnancydome.com. And uh, there's a lot of information about my book and also about the work that I do. And really, you know, my company, Epic Education, focuses on more team and systemic change, whereas I focus specifically on, you know, supporting coaching more of the small teams, one-on-one um and then keynotes and things like that, you know, inspiring and also teaching the protocol. Because I think that with the protocol, we really, if people begin to live it, we will see change. We have seen enough over the last 10 years of real change happening because people have used the protocol. And so I, um, it is not the only way, but it is a way, if it resonates with you, that you can begin to um, manifest the change that you want to see happen, whether it's personally or in your organization. Fantastic. Well, it's these kind of conversations are the reason that we're here and the, the, the sort of message that we're trying to share. And there'll be there'll be someone in an, an office or a room or somewhere in their car thinking that's exactly the conversation I needed to hear to to change the world, which is what we're kind of all here trying to do and, and make, the, make the world a better place for those people that we're serving. So Nancy, thank yeah. you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. 
education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.